0: We'll be in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks, foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. but you shall be called the priests of the Lord." They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They, have, they shall have everlasting joy. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Welcome this morning to third week of Advent um, I want you to fill in the blank. That's how I'm going to start out this morning. I'm feeling really what right now? Feeling really, really excited right now. I'm feeling really tired right now. I'm feeling really anxious right now. Maybe I'm feeling really discouraged right now. Uh, maybe you'd say I'm feeling really hopeful right now. We're headed into the holiday season. Some of you would just be like, I'm feeling really busy right now. And I'm wondering if anybody thought, you know, I'm feeling really joyful right now. Really joyful. And that's the word you thought of. Because joy is the third theme of Advent. And each of these candles represents historically, liturgically, the four weeks of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. The first one, so two weeks ago, we started with the theme of hope, and then last week, Richard spoke to us on the theme of peace, then this week we come to the theme of joy. And I hope by talking about this, that when you leave here this morning, you actually are leaving more joyful and more thoughtfully joyful than when you walked in this morning. So what is joy? I want to start with a little definition of joy. And I think I often see as I'm studying the topics of joy and happiness, these distinctions made between those two words and you maybe have seen some of these some people say you know happiness is more of a a a subjective thing that you experience whereas joy is more objective or people say you know happiness is a feeling an emotion joy is something down deep in your soul happiness is dependent on your circumstances joy is something that you experience irrespective of your circumstances it just kind of is Okay? Some people will say happiness is this temporary thing, this fleeting thing, it comes and goes. Joy is this permanent, deep, abiding thing. And I don't know about you, those distinctions feel kind of arbitrary to me. I don't know a lot of people that make those distinctions in everyday life. Like you ever, you ever think to someone or say to someone, you know, I'm not happy right now, but I am really joyful. You, you link those two things together almost always. So I went to Oxford Dictionary this week. I thought Oxford will help us out. And it says, happiness is the state of being happy. Joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. So they're just using happiness to define joy. And uh, I thought, you know, Merriam-Webster does a little bit better job at least saying happiness is a state of well-being and contentment or a feeling based on a pleasurable or satisfying experience. Meanwhile, according to Merriam-Webster, joy is the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. And you notice even in those definitions, there is no distinction. They, you know, both are a condition and an emotion. Both are circumstantial, but also transcending circumstantial. So I want to kind of just ditch dictionary definitions for now Look at what Scripture has to say about joy, particularly how the theme of Advent, the coming of Jesus, and the coming again of Jesus impact the way we think about happiness and joy together, okay? And here's the big point, and I think Advent is a reminder of this. God wants you, hear me say this, God wants you to experience happiness and joy even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of difficult circumstances of this life, And some of you are going through some very hard things, the brokenness, the darkness. God wants you to experience joy in the midst of that, in spite of that, sometimes even because of that, and God will ultimately deliver us from anything and everything that could steal our joy, and that's the hope of his second coming. Um, By the way, if you hear joy around the Advent time, around the Christmas time, there are a number of carols prominently, joy to the world, right? Right? That's what I think of. I think of the angelic announcement, like joy will come because this baby boy has been born. I think of joy to the world, which actually, if you read the lyrics, it's more about the second coming of Jesus than the first coming of Jesus, but joy. And I want to begin with four basic or what I would say are kind of obvious statements about joy that you may never even think about, but these are important. Number one, do you know our God is a God of joy? God is joyful. For example, Psalm 1611 says... In God's presence is fullness of joy because he is joy. Number two, God made the world and humankind to be joyful. So in in Job 38, where Job and God are having kind of this back and forth conversation, one of the incredible things that God asks Job is he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God is not only saying, Job, you you weren't there at the beginning, so you're not sovereign, so you're going to have to trust me to be God. He's also saying, the world that I created was a world of joy. It was meant to be filled with joy. The third statement is that the essence of the gospel. So the essence of what we believe as Christians, we could say it lots of ways. One of those essential things that we would say about the gospel is it is joy. Luke 2, and that's what I just referenced a moment ago. When the angel comes and announces to shepherds that this baby boy has been born, this is what one of them says. For fear, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the peoples. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the gospel that's coming, the good news is coming. It's good news because it's bringing joy to overcome the darkness of grief or sorrow or despair. Then the fourth kind of basic statement out of the gate here this morning is that our future with God, for those who will be going home to spend eternity with him, is a future of eternal joy. So Isaiah 51:11, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away so I was just thinking this week, if those four things are true, that God is joyful, God made the world to be joyful, the gospel essentially is joy, and we will live joyfully forever with God for those who put their hope in Jesus, then why don't we experience more joy, or I could say happiness, in this present day-to-day life? What, what is stealing that joy in the first place, and how do we get it back, and what does Advent have to say about any of this? And that's kind of the order I want to go in. So first big question or set of questions is like, why don't we experience more joy day to day? Or what is stealing our joy? And I think there's a a past answer to that, but there's also a present answer, okay? So let's start in the past. Why don't we experience more joy now? Well, because in the past, joy was interrupted by sin and by the sorrow that was brought by sin. And most of you know this story, so I'll just quickly summarize it, but Genesis 1, as I just said, the very first chapter of the Bible, when God is making the world and everything in it, he gets to the end of creation. He says, it's good. In fact, it's very good. He uses these different terms to describe what he's just made. And he says, it's good, which means it's beautiful. It is fruitful. It is flourishing, and it's producing human flourishing. It's all pure joy. But then in the third chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 3, The first man and the first woman decide we're going to play God for ourselves. And instead of doing what God told us to do, we're going to determine right and wrong for ourselves. So he said, don't do this thing. Well, we're going to do the thing because we think that it's better to trust ourselves than to trust God. And they sin. And we read in Genesis 3 that not only do they sin and immediately they experience guilt, like the objective we did wrong, but they also experience the more subjective shame. And the Lord comes back to them in conversation. And there's this thing called the fall or the curse of sin. And this curse starts spreading, not just on the first man and the first woman, but it starts spreading throughout everything like a virus infecting everything. So enmity, conflict are entering into the joy of God's creation. Frustration and futility are entering into the joy of God's good creation, joyful creation. And death enters the joy of God's creation. So if you're ever wondering, why is there so much grief? Why is there so much brokenness and pain and sorrow and frustration and stress and futility where we're like working and working and working and we get some fruit from our work, but never enough, never what we expect? This, the Bible's answer is because sin produces those things. Sin produces sorrow And we could say unhappiness. Why are we unhappy? Because of sin. By the way, this is one of the really ironic things about sin is, you know, when you're tempted by sin, sin does not come as this ugly, terrible, hateful thing and say to you, if you do me, if you think me, if you say me, it may feel great for a moment, but it's going to go terribly wrong for you and it's going to bring sorrow to you and it's going to bring grief to other people. No, it comes to you and it masquerades like Satan in the garden. And it says, if you do me, if you say me, you will experience tremendous joy. You'll be filled with delight. You'll feel pleasure as a result of doing this. But but sin is lying to us. And sin always, always and ultimately produces sorrow. And nothing but sorrow. It's not a mix of like joy and sorrow. Sin just ultimately produces sorrow. So that's a piece of the puzzle. If you're looking at your life and you're just like, man, everything just feels a little bit off, you can look back in the history of theology and the history of the Bible, and it tells you a big reason that's the case is because of sin, and sin lying to us, and then sin having negative consequences. But in the present everyday experience, there's another reason that we often lose our joy, and that is because our joy or our experience of joy is often interrupted by difficult and disappointing things. And you all know that. It's your day-to-day experience. And and I could run through some of these. Like, you have personal issues. You say, just, just my health, my finances, my emotions that I'm having a hard time getting in control. Maybe some legal stuff that's going on in my life. But just looking at me for a moment, there are things that are constantly disrupting, that are making me less joyful and happy than I could be. Just things with me. Then you start adding one other person let alone kind of uh, an orbit of lots of people in your life, and you realize relationship issues are causing me grief and sorrow and pain and frustration. Because there's conflict with people. We don't see eye to eye on everything. Or someone hurts me, or I hurt them. And then one of us or both of us is too proud to actually go make it right. And so this conflict is bringing a sorrow, a grief, a frustration. There's letdown. Or we go into a relationship thinking, this is going to be everything that I need to experience bliss forever. And you're still human, and that other person is still human, and it just doesn't work. Like, you have moments of happiness, you have seasons of joy, but you also have moments and seasons and experiences of brokenness and pain. You look at your own life, and you add now work to that, or vocation, you know, a calling, a job, And in that orbit, there are things that are hard, things that are painful, people taking credit for your work, you getting paid unfairly while someone else gets a promotion. There's a futility like God promised in the Garden of Eden that you're working, 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 and it's just never producing as much good results as you had hoped that it would produce. We've got environmental issues, I mean, in our neighborhood, in our city, in our world, that all of these things that you're living in the midst of in the present moment are impacting you. And I'm not saying that you are, you are experiencing a lack of joy because every time, God's, that's just God's way of saying, what's this sin in your life that you should be repenting of? Sometimes that's true, but a lot of times it's just simply, you live in a broken world. You live in a world that's being worn down by sin and by the consequences of sin. And very often, it's not that you did anything wrong per se. It's just that you live in this broken world tainted by sin And there's sorrow. There's stuff that just is grabbing at your joy and your happiness and your contentment all the time. Another thing that's doing that, and I think this is really important, is whenever there's a gap between your expectations and reality, what do you tend to fill that gap with? And I mean, when you have good expectations of something, like I I am going to enter into this relationship, maybe a dating relationship, and you're like, and that wasn't all that. Or even marriage. I mean, especially for people who are like, marriage will solve my problems or having children will solve my problems. And you realize there were many great and good things about it, but it also brought new layers of conflict, new layers of frustration. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't all that. It may be as simple as going out to a restaurant and just thinking, I thought this food would be better. You know, I thought my team would win yesterday and they didn't. I, I thought this job would be more satisfying. I thought it would lead me somewhere better and different than where it led me. I thought vacation would be more relaxing. You ever come back from a vacation? You're like, man, I'm more tired than I have. I had not gotten in the car or gotten on the plane and gone and done all the relaxing things. And now I'm behind a week. What do you fill that gap with? I think most of us, when, we're, when the expectation is here and the reality is here, or here, or here. We fill that with disappointment, grief, sorrow, some kind of frustration. So I'd simply say that the brokenness of our world is producing grief, is producing sorrow, and it lets us down in really trivial, but also really significant ways. So we don't live with constant joy. Now, Big point, too, is what does Advent have to say about that? Why are we this morning parked on what this third candle represents in joy coming to overcome the darkness of that kind of frustration and grief and sorrow, pain? Well, let's begin by looking back, okay? We we have said throughout this series, and it's a short series, but we've often said we as New Covenant, New Testament Christians live in this in-between time. We're in between the first coming of Jesus in the past and the second coming of Jesus in the future. So we're both looking back and looking forward and seeing what can I learn about my present day life and glorifying God and experiencing his joy in the present based on what he did back here and what he did out here. So one of the wise things that we do is we kind of like rewind in the story. We go back, we put ourselves in the place of Old Testament Christians, They weren't called Christians there. They were called the people of God because they didn't know about the Christ yet. But they're people who have faith in the same God that we have faith in, and they're looking forward to Messiah coming. And the first big idea here is that the Old Testament hope was that when Messiah comes, there will be joy because he will overcome our sorrow. We, We understand that we're broken. We understand that we're sinful. We're idolaters. Some of us are adulterers, liars, thieves. We're, we're broken, but their they're looking forward expectation is when Messiah comes, he will overcome all of that, and we will experience joy. And That's why we read together Isaiah 61 this morning. That was one of many, many prophecies, a looking forward to when Messiah comes, we will have joy. And I wanted you to hear two, two big themes in Isaiah 61, because it's in a lot of other texts like Psalm 96, Psalm 98 carry very similar themes, for example. But the first key feature of many of these prophecies is simply a recognition of the sources of sorrow. So we went through this. Like verse 1, there's a reference to poverty, to broken hearts, to some kind of captivity or bondage, whether that's figurative or literal. It is, I am not free to experience joy in the ways that I thought I've experienced joy. My, again, literal poverty of I don't have money or a figurative kind of poverty, I don't have something else that I need for joy, it's lacking, therefore I'm this this kind of brokenness, these broken hearts. You go on to verse 3 and you see these signs of the grief. You know, back in those days, they would literally put on sackcloth, like scratchy clothes, and part of showing everyone else that you were living in grief over something that happened maybe the death of a loved one or a disease or a conclusion of your rabbi that you weren't fit to come be a part of the worshiping community they literally put on really scratchy clothes and that was part of the just experience of life is rough life is unfair and they would put ashes on their head so people passing by could see oh sackcloth and ashes This is a person grieving. And you could tell from a distance, this is someone or this is a family or a tribe or a people that is in grieving, mourning. Verse 3 refers to a faint spirit. Um, Verse 4 is interesting because there's a reference to ancient ruins, former devastations, ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And I want you to understand that's not hyperbole, that's not figurative. The prophets are like Isaiah, literally saying, because of Babylonian captivity, because of another nation, kingdom, far more powerful than we are, coming in God's judgment on us and deporting us, they leveled many of our cities, destroyed our temple and tabernacles and synagogues in these various places. And so as they're reflecting back on their captivity, they're like, God, we've sinned against you. Many of us have sinned and We look at our cities, we look at our places that used to be big and beautiful and the ways that we made them to be beautiful and fulfilling and they're devastated, they're wiped out. Verse 7, a reference to shame and dishonor, how others had treated them disgracefully, intentionally stomping on their high places and mocking their God. God. And so that's the first part of this prophecy is they're like, we're just acknowledging this complex, multi-layered sorrow and grief and devastation and frustration and brokenness. But secondly, there's confidence in these prophecies that God will himself come and restore our fortunes. So look at this, verse one, we don't know who this is yet, but it says, someone is anointed with the spirit of God to come and that someone is going to bring good news to the poor, that someone will bind up the brokenhearted, that someone will proclaim liberty to captives, that someone will open prison houses to those who are bound. Going on in verse three, that someone will give beautiful headdresses in place of ashes. So you see the you see the swap out of like instead of ashes dumped on your head to show people I'm mourning, there's a beautiful headdress that's saying, Oh, you're celebrating something. Okay, someone will anoint with the oil of gladness in place of mourning. Someone will put on garments of praise in place of a faint spirit. Going on, verse 7, someone will give God's people a double portion instead of shame. Someone will give them an inheritance instead of dishonor. Someone will bring them everlasting joy. And if we back up to verse 2, notice someone will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and a day of vengeance of God. So if I were to summarize all that, someone would come and bring God's people joy. How? That's important. How? Not just by showing up and being like, ta-da, I'm here. You should be happy. You know, and you know people like that in your life. It's just like all the mess is still going on. And you're like, well, it's it's so happy to add you. Like, I'm glad you're here. You're not doing anything about all the problems that are causing me sorrow, but you're here. Well, that's not what this someone is saying. This someone is saying literally almost the opposite. Yes, I've come, but I've come to reverse the sorrow by literally changing the fortune of everything that could be a cause of sorrow. So I'm removing every cause of sorrow from your life. So what's the result? It's joy because there's no reason to be sorrowful. There's no reason to grieve anything anymore because in place of pain and brokenness, there's healing and liberation. Okay? Now this may be a spoiler alert for like three of you, we believe that Jesus of Nazareth, that Jesus Christ is this Messiah who's spoken of in Isaiah 61. I'd I use the word someone will come and do this. We believe on the authority of scripture that someone is Jesus. Now here's what's fascinating, and here's why I say we believe it's Jesus. In Luke chapter four, verses 18 and 19, Jesus quotes this exact prophecy in his synagogue, in his hometown of Nazareth. So in in Luke 4, we read this. These are red letter words, so this means Jesus is talking. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, this would be the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So very clearly, what is Jesus saying? He takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that Maddie read a portion of this morning. He finds this place where it says, someone will come and do this. Someone will do this, and someone will do this, and someone will do this. And you will have joy instead of sorrow. And he reads that and says, today this is fulfilled. And so we look at the text and we're like, okay, did Jesus proclaim good news? Gospel. Absolutely. Okay. Did he literally open the eyes of the blind and liberate those who were in captivity to sin? Yes. Did he come to declare favor with God, grace, mercy, peace with God? Absolutely he did. Okay, so your, your big point two is we're talking about Advent. Remember, one, as we're looking back, we're associating ourselves with the old covenant people of God and saying they believed when Messiah comes, there will be joy instead of sorrow. Now kind of big point two, today joy is possible because Jesus has come. We have good news that the Old Testament people of God could barely dream of. And the good news is you are not in bondage to sin. Like Jesus has come, and, and by what he did in his life, by what he did in his sacrificial death, by what he did from rising from the dead and conquering death itself, we don't have the same fears and the same sorrows, the same things that could grieve us that grieved Old Testament saints. You are not held captive by the power of sin. You're not held captive by the penalty of sin. Jesus already paid the penalty for you. So my point is, it's wildly inappropriate for like church-age Christians, that's who we are, to be in a constant state of sorrow and shame. It's inappropriate if Jesus has come and broken the darkness and lit the light, so to speak, For us to be in a perpetual state of just frustration and angst and stress and busyness and sorrow and shame and all of that set of things. How can we be perpetually melancholy when God has already come and said, I've broken the power of things that can make you forever sad and I've begun to restore you. And by the way, because Jesus came and has returned to the Father, the scripture says he sent his spirit. Do you remember this? Where he tells his disciples, I'm going away. And they're, they're what? They're sorrowful. And they're like, well, how are we supposed to have joy if you are teacher and Lord and Savior? You're going away. This is not good for us. And he said, it's good. Trust me, because I'm going to send the spirit. And the spirit won't just be with you walking around Israel as I was, the Spirit will be in you. So you will have the third person of the Trinity. You will have his presence. You will have his power dwelling within you. And this is good news because Galatians 5.22 says joy is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And that's encouraging because he's saying in this present age, it's not just that you're supposed to like grasp on to certain mental truths and be like, okay, I should be more joyful because I know God said, but God is saying, I'm actually at work in you to bear a fruit that it's growing just as you abide in me and trust in me and stay connected to me and hope in me, I'll be doing this in you to produce this peace. So what I'm telling is even looking only backward at this point, at the first advent of Jesus, We have access to a kind of joy and a quality of joy that the Old Testament believers did not yet have access to. So we should, on the whole, be joyful people. But one more thing, because it gets even better, far better than what we have it today. Because the third thing that I want to say about Advent is that joy is our future and forever hope because God will come again and he'll finish the restoration that he started at the first Advent. This is something that you may have heard this taught before. I don't know if you noticed it between when Maddie read Isaiah 61 and when I read Luke 4, 18 and 19. But did anybody notice that Jesus only quoted part of Isaiah 61? And he actually stops in the middle of a verse. Okay, remember Isaiah 61 verse 2 says, "...the Lord has anointed him, the Messiah, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God." But Jesus stopped mid-sentence and left off that whole vengeance part. He just said, I've come to preach good news to the poor, to liberate captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and hands it back and didn't say anything about vengeance. And you, you say, well, why, why is that? How could he stop in the middle of a prophecy? And there's this old idea that says, and you, you probably have heard this, maybe some of you believe this. Well, it's because the Old Testament God was this angry, vengeful righteous God of justice and holiness but thankfully we have access to this new testament God Jesus and he's he's much more chill right he's not the God of vengeance and judgment and condemnation he's just kind and nice and filled with grace and he just loves everyone and everything and that is not what the Bible teaches First of all, there aren't two different gods. There isn't an old covenant God and a new covenant God. You have Father, Son, and Spirit here. You have Father, Son, and Spirit now. You have Father, Son, and Spirit forever. The reality is Jesus stops mid-sentence because there was two Advents, not one. So when Jesus first comes, yes, it's, it's a year of the Lord's favor. He's saying there is favor with God. I mean, do you remember what, what, what the angel even tells Mary this like teenage virgin girl who's espoused. She's, she's basically engaged to be married, but she's not yet married. Mary, you have found favor with God. Some of the first verses of the New Testament. And it's not like God was looking down and you're awesome, you're holy, you're perfect, so you get the baby that's gonna change the world. It's just like you have found grace with God. And when this baby comes, He's going to do everything necessary in our world to give grace and peace and hope and eternal life to anyone who believes in his name. Okay, so the first coming, basically Jesus is coming and saying, here is life and salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of this Lord shall be saved. But there's a second coming, a second advent That's still future for all of us. And the Bible is very clear that this same Jesus, I mean, you can read the book of Revelation. It's not a new God, a third God or something. It's the same Jesus who was all this grace and hope. And here's my life to take your place. He comes back in judgment. And it's righteous judgment. It's perfect judgment. It's I know absolutely everything that everyone ever did to you, ever said about you, I know the things that you wanted to do and didn't do because you knew they were wrong. I know everything. It'll be a perfect justice. But the Bible uses the word vengeance in some places to describe this second coming. And that sounds terrible. We're like, I just want more of the grace stuff, more of the year of the Lord's favor stuff. I don't want the day of vengeance stuff. So can I tell you why this day of vengeance stuff is such good news? Good news. Not bad news. Good news. So you have to go back in what I'd said a few moments ago. Where did all the sin or where did all the sorrow and pain and grief come from in the first place? It was not a part of God's original good design. It was an intrusion. It was a result. It was a consequence of sin, a consequence, consequence of rebellion against God. And so that kind of sorrow and that kind of grief and that kind of frustration and that kind of perpetual disappointment where nothing is ever quite how it should be is going to continue to be part of our experience unless God gets rid of what? The underlying root cause of our sorrow, which is sin. God says a day is coming when I will pour out perfect justice on every sin, which means all sin has to go away forever. And there's this new heavens and this new earth and it's restored and it is pure joy. And do you know why it's pure joy? Because sin can't come back ever. God, Jesus is just like, it's, it's banished. So everyone has this choice. You can either like, You can either take the punishment yourself and just say, well, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't accept that he did this for me. And then then your sin has to go away somehow or else you're going to continue to cause problems for yourself and other people. But, if, but, but, but the hope and, and what we celebrate every Sunday in the bread and the wine is, is Christ saying, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. In other words, the vengeance that could be coming on you was taken out on me instead. I don't want you to be punished for your sin. I willingly was punished for your sin to get rid of it. To put it away forever so it doesn't sneak back into the new and restored creation one day to ever be allowed to cause sorrow and grief. So the reason we can look forward to the new heavens and new earth and say, like, there aren't even tears there. There isn't grief or sadness there is because Jesus got rid of the underlying root cause of that sadness. He'll say, one day there will be only joy and rejoicing because the underlying conditions necessary to produce grief and sorrow in the first place, they won't exist there. That's good news. That in the first coming, he says, Here is grace. May you know the love of the Father for you. May you know his sacrifice for you. But if you don't receive that sacrifice, if you're going to live in rebellion and just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just be like, Nope, I'll be my own God, my own Lord, my own Savior. God will put that all away so that eternity can be pure joy. Now, I want to end how I've been ending this series and just like, how do we practice joy tomorrow? And I going to be very practical with a few things because joy is not just like this mental construct of it's obviously fuzzy because Merriam-Webster and Oxford can't figure out really what it is or what the distinction between the two of them are. But here's how you can practice joy. A couple of practical things. Number one, identify what's stealing your joy, I said this a few weeks ago when we talked about hope, but when you feel hopelessness, when you feel despondency, when you feel despair, it feels like a totalizing experience. It feels like everything in my life is hopeless. And we we actually do a poor job of saying, well, no, actually everything is not hopeless. Here's something going well, here's something hopeful, but here's really the thing that's pushing on me in a painful way where I feel like everything is hopeless. We tend to do the same with grief especially when the grief is particularly fresh or particularly acute. We tend to think everything in my life is so dark, is so painful, is so filled with grief and sorrow and discouragement and discontentment. And we would be very wise to say that isn't true. What actually is causing the grief? What is producing this sorrow in my heart, this sadness in my heart? So we say, Is it a specific circumstance? Is it the lack of something that I want or even need that is causing that? And I want you to think not only about the specific circumstance, but I want you to think what is it about that thing that is producing sadness? Here's what I mean you can make one list that just says, well, physical pain causes me grief, sadness, sorrow. Some of you that experience chronic pain, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, physical pain makes me kind of edgy and grumpy and not happy, not joyful. Or you could say um, financial struggles. I don't have the money that I need to get the things that I want. And just that struggle, that constant stress of like, how do I make ends meet every month? How do I pay for the things that I need? Even a roof over my head or food on my table, some of you, leads to sadness. It's reasonable. It's reasonable. Some of you would look at your work or your job and just say, my work brings me a lot of sadness right now. This relationship in my life brings me a lot of sadness right now. The news, everything's sad. And it's like, well, duh, that's why, it's, that's why it's on the news. You know, the, the, we, we found out the good news doesn't really sell, but the sad stuff does. That's where we tune in. We, we stop what we're doing in the kitchen, food prep, and we're like, whoa, what happened? That's terrible. That sells. And so it's there. So I'm saying work, pain, relationships, the news, all those, so we're like, that's the circumstances making me sad. What is it about that circumstance that's making you sad? And we're kind of thinking, like, what's the layer underneath, the the surface layer? And I was thinking about, like, my physical pain. Well, it's not just like, oh, that hurts, I'm sad, because there are kinds of pain I'm like, I don't care, like muscle soreness after a good workout, you're like, that feels awesome, right? In a way. Like, you could be sad, but you're like, but I'm not, because that shows I worked a muscle and it's now going to grow if I feed it correctly and let it sleep, you know? Um, but physical pain can cause sadness because I think it limits me. I can't do a lot of things that I wish I could do. So it's really not the physical pain, but it's the physical pain takes away something that I value. Or you could say with your financial struggles, I can't have the things that I want. It's not just that I'm really thinking about money and obsessed about money and love money. I don't, but I can't have things that I need. I can't maybe provide for my kids or someone else that I love in my life. I can't get everything I want to give them like a Merry Christmas this year. And that hurts, that's sadness. Maybe work a relationship. You're like, it's not really the superficial thing. I mean, yeah, I had a rough conversation. I'm sad about that. But you're like, it, it just isn't as deeply satisfying as I thought it would be. Like, I I thought it would hit this expectation, and it it is here, and I'm filling that gap with this grief. Can I give you three key words that cause our sorrow? And again, I'm just trying to help you identify it and just put your finger on it and be like, "It's, it's that. It's not everything. It's that. And again, I'm going under the surface. Sorrow is caused by a lack of comfort, a lack of control, and a lack of contentment. And when you don't have one of those three things, let alone two or three of those three things, when you don't have comfort, control, or contentment, you fill it with sadness. I think a lot of times in my life, it's just like I can't control an outcome that's important to me, and that makes me sad. I'm not content with this when I wanted this, or I wanted to provide my kids with this experience, and this is what happened instead. So lack of comfort, lack of control, lack of contentment. You would be very wise to just call it out in your life and be like, "I am not content. I am not satisfied right now, God, with what you're giving me." So that's part one: identify what's stealing your joy. Part two: practical. Ask God to change your factory default setting. Okay, and y'all know this if you ever call the the, the IT department, you know, and something's not working, and you're not connecting to the internet, and your phone's down, your cables down, your TV's down, all your all the things are down. And they'll they'll always be like, well, did you bother to, what, like power cycle it, right? Unplug it, wait a few seconds, plug it back in to let it kind of go back to its factory default. I think here's the problem if I'm just being candid with you. A lot of us have a factory default of being kind of like sad and miserable. And every once in a while, something really amazing happens in our life and we're like, okay, I'm happy. Now I'm right back to sad because that's my factory default. Well... That is not indicative of a life, and I'm saying that to myself. That is not indicative of a life that is controlled by or is producing this fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. So I said, ask God to change your factory default setting where it's, God, because, man, I'm looking at what you did for me. And Jesus, even if you only quote the first half of that Isaiah 61 one two, that is some incredible stuff. You came and preached good news to me and you, you opened my blind eyes to value you, to treasure you, to see that you are Lord and Savior and worthy of my love and you've opened the bars and, and, and liberated me from the chains of addiction and bondage and death in the end. I get to spend eternity with you forever. Why am I perpetually melancholy? I should be, I should be baseline... Happy and joyful about what you've done for me. Baseline happy and joyful about the fact that I have your spirit producing joy in me if I just stay connected to you. And yes, because life is hard, it'll be like, ouch, that hurts. I confess that to you, God. Maybe I need to talk through this with a friend. Grief, pain, sadness. As you're bringing me back to this factory default of the ground you stand on is joy, I think just be honest with yourself. Is it like life is really miserable and every once in a while there's a good enough experience that I feel a little bit of joy before I step right back into my despondency? Or are you like, life is generally happy, joyful. I'm content, generally. Painful things happen. I acknowledge them. God, help me get back on the foundation of your joy. That's what I'm talking about. Thirdly, I think this is connected, but find joy in your savior, not in your situation. Because I'll just tell you, in a broken world, and I ran through all those categories and those layers of things in your orbit, relationships, work, job, physical pain, emotional pain, psychological pain, and and, and there's a lot of layers to things that if you're like, if any of those layers hits just wrong on any given day, I'm probably going to be sad. Well, then you're finding your joy in your situation, and very often your situation is broken. We're invited in Scripture to find our joy in the Savior. Listen to this. Okay, this is Old Testament stuff. I mean, with a name like Habakkuk, you know it's Old Testament stuff, right? So Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, the prophet is going through all these things of despair. He's seeing the idolatry of the people of God. He's seeing this judgment come on the people of God. He's seeing this despair come on the people of God. And he's frustrated. But... This is how the book ends. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And what to God that would be our prayer where it's just, if everything's going wrong this Advent Christmas season, and I don't have this that I wish I had, and I didn't get invited to this, and I can't afford that. And I'm going to roll over to a new year, and I've set some new goals, but I'll probably miss those two if I'm just being honest. And you, you could very quickly go to a dark place if that's your rehearsal in your mind, in your heart, but you could do something like that and say, You know, business isn't great right now. I'm really struggling to make ends meet, but God is in control. God is the one that gave me this work. God is the one that put me in these relationships, maybe in this church. So I can keep working in faith and joy because even when I'm not in control, he is in control. Okay, so when I'm losing that C word in my life and I'm like, I don't have control, but I worship one who does. I don't have to be so discontent because my joy is Fixed to something that's not up and down and all over the place. My joy is fixed to a Savior who is faithful and reliable. Who's already done this for me and who will come again one day to make sure all sin goes away forever. So there's no reintroduction of pain and grief. By the way, do you know Jesus did this on the cross? I say, look look to your Savior, not your circumstances. But Hebrews 12, 2 that I've always loved says something like this. We are invited to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And it says this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So you know, even when Jesus is hanging there on a cross and he's physically tormented, he's emotionally and psychologically tormented. He is spiritually tormented because the father actually has abandoned him because he took our sin And that's what our sin deserved. And he's crying out on all these levels of pain and grief and sorrow and sadness. And there's no answer from heaven. He just dies. He says he's doing that looking through it to the joy that's on the other side. He's not saying, I am so bent out of shape, Father. Where are you? He's like, I know this was the good news plan. This is how anybody comes home and gets reconciled to the Father. I'm looking through it to the joy on the other side that's connected to a father in this case who is faithful finally do and say joyful things do and say joyful things i don't mean this is the power of positive thinking or i mean i've heard like speak truth to life your words become your reality kind of stuff that's the bible barely teaches that okay so I'm, that's not what i'm saying do you know we're commanded in scripture over and over and over again to rejoice? Commanded to rejoice. It's like Philippians 4:4. 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. What about rejoicing in the Lord sometimes? What about rejoicing in the Lord when you feel like rejoicing? What about rejoicing in the Lord when your circumstances cause an overflow of joy in your heart? And he says rejoice in the Lord always. And he's like, and you probably didn't get what I just said. So let me say it again. Rejoice what's he doing is he saying he's pointing out just a simple truth that a lot of times you know people say follow your heart well, the bible doesn't say follow your heart it says lead your heart because a lot of times if you're following your heart you're like my heart is really sad right now so i guess i'll just go do and say sad things that'll help people around me that'll help me get over this hurdle well it doesn't you know it makes it worse When you're saying and doing sad things, whereas you can lead your heart and say, I feel this, it's true. And you can confess to God, that's part of my reality. I'm just sad right now. But I'm going to do and say things that a joyful person would do and say. Because you know a lot of times the faithfulness comes before the feeling. You doing and saying what God has called you to do and say comes before you feel like doing and saying those things. It's, it's like the truth or anything. You wouldn't be like, well, I'm just going to lie until I feel like telling the truth. You wouldn't do that. So you're like, well, I know I need to be faithful and tell the truth. Well, you need to be faithful and say and do things that communicate joy and a deep and abiding joy in the person and the work of God. Let the feeling come from the faithfulness. Lead your heart to experience unbreakable joy in the worst of times. The Savior came, and the Savior's coming again. And he's going to make everything sad come untrue. It's going to be only joy. So may we in this Advent season be those who say, Lord, let that kingdom come. Let that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May there be more joy in Denver, in my home, in my workplace, because I'm bringing that future kingdom into my work, into my relationships now, and saying, Lord, let me be faithful, and may the feeling of joy follow.